There's 10 seconds to go in the Western Conference Final. Seven remaining. And the St. Louis Blues, for the first time in 49 years, have done it. You can bring out the Zamboni. The Blues will go to the Stanley Cup Final and face off against the Boston Bruins. A rematch, 49 years in the making, comes true in St. Louis tonight. Welcome to the Blue Line Podcast, presented by the Athletic St. Louis. Now here are your hosts, Jeremy Rutherford and Cristiano Simonetta. And this is episode 10 of the Blue Line Podcast. I'm Jeremy Rutherford of the Athletic St. Louis alongside Cristiano Simonetta. And this podcast is the Stanley Cup edition We will preview the Blues and the Bruins, the Blues' first appearance in the Stanley Cup Final in 49 years, and we're going to do that with a very special guest, the voice of the St. Louis Blues, John Kelly, in studio with us today. And I want to introduce John and Cristiano. And, John, i got to tell you that uh, Cristiano tells me he's looked up to you as a broadcast student major uh, for a long time. So, John, Cristiano Simonetta. It's awesome to be with you, Jeremy, and also Cristiano. Obviously, I, I... Have never met you, but um, I hear you're a great young broadcaster, and hopefully we'll see you in the NHL someday. That would be awesome. Well, I appreciate that, John. First off, let me just say that it's been a pleasure to listen to you call this team as I've grown up, and now it's 2019, and we could finally say the St. Louis Blues are headed to the Stanley Cup Final. I'm sure there's a level of disbelief between all three of us this week on the Blue Line Podcast, and we thank you for joining us, John. Yeah, and uh, I remember when I met uh, John for the first time, but I wasn't in as much awe as Cristiano is today. <laughs> you know, it was just uh, like... nobody should be in awe of me. Let's just get that out there right now, guys. <laughs> another guy. Well, I'll tell you what we are in awe of. We are in awe of talking about the Stanley Cup Final, John Cristiano. This is a pretty amazing story. Obviously, January second, January third, we never would have thought that the last place Blues would be in the Stanley Cup Final. They are after an incredible win over San Jose to take that third round series, the Conference Final, and now they're in the Stanley Cup against the Boston Bruins. And, John, how poetic, because the last time the Blues were in the Stanley Cup Final, you remember 1970 against the Boston Bruins. Yeah, I remember the day very well and the last goal very well because my father called that goal when Bobby Orr scored at 40 seconds overtime, was tripped by Noel Picard, scored behind Glenn Hall. And it's hard to believe, guys, it's been 49 years since the Blues played in a final game. And the way they have done it is borderline miraculous it really is unbelievable and if they were to go on and win the the final and win the stanley cup you could argue it would be the greatest in-season turnaround in sports history not just the nhl but in sports history to go from last overall in mid-january mid-season to again if they win it to winning a championship. I don't know if it's ever been done in sports. John, what are your recollections of that series? I don't know how old you were. You obviously didn't travel with your dad, but you were, I'm sure, watching uh, the series and listening to his call. What do you remember? Well, I remember going to the arena for game one because the Blues had home ice advantage in that series, and Jacques Plante was the starting goalie, the Hall of Famer, and I believe it was in the second period, he was hit in the mask on a slap shot that was deflected, and he was knocked out cold, and he was taken off on a stretcher, and he famously said after the game when he came to that the, the, the goalie mask saved my life. And he, he didn't play in that series after that, to my recollection, and that's why Glenn Hall was in goal in Game 4. So I remember Game 1 like it was yesterday, and then after that it's more of a blur, guys. Um, I, I saw the games on TV um, from Boston, and obviously like – 
all Blues fans was disappointed when they lost in overtime in Game 4. Yeah, let's get back to that series in one second, but I want to interject this. Cristiano, as we mentioned, is a young broadcaster, and he does some hockey games. Cristiano, you told me earlier that when a goalie takes a puck off a mask, what do you always say on the air? Well, I tell the goaltender to thank Jacques Font, the first goaltender to wear a mask in the National Hockey League, because it certainly paid off for him after that shot shattered his fiberglass mask in that series. So 50 uh, years later, we're still remembering uh, Jacques Plante taking that puck off the uh, mask, John, and obviously did save his life. Uh, the goal, you talked about it. It ended the game. What was the heartbreak like when Bobby Orr scored, goes soaring through the air after no- Noel Picard tripped him? Well, it was obviously heartbreaking for everybody, but I, I was a young guy, Jeremy. I was nine years old. 39. And uh, Yeah, 39, <laughs> right. And... You know, I had only been in St. Louis for a couple of years. My father actually didn't announce the Blues games in the first year. It was Jack Buck and Jay Randolph. So it was my father's second year with the Blues. Um, I can only imagine how he felt. Again, he was doing the game for CBS TV. So here he is as a guy who in two years had become a fixture with the Blues. He loved the Blues. Quite honestly... Half the team was older than my father. He was 33 at the time. So he he became very close to the players and, of course, Scotty Bowman, who he knew from his days in Ottawa. And his team just lost in the final, yet he was announcing the game on network TV, and he had to play it down the middle. And he had to give the call and the goal its proper justice, and I think he did that. I think he did a fantastic job of showing the, the proper recognition of the moment. And, you know, Bobby Orr obviously, was the golden boy in Boston. He was the the greatest player to come out of junior hockey in the history of Canada. I think he played major junior hockey at age 14 or 15. He's amazing. And for him to score the goal in overtime and then get tripped and fly through the air, I think, guys, you could argue it's perhaps the most famous goal in hockey history and perhaps the most famous picture in hockey history of him getting tripped and flying through the air after he scored on Glen Hall. Yeah, I spoke to Noel Picard about that before uh, he passed away. You know, rest in peace to uh, Noel Picard. But he said a few years ago, he said he paid for his daughter's college with the number of times he signed that photo. Yeah, I bet he did. <laughs> <laughs> and another funny story from that, I spoke to Terry Crisp, who now is on the Nashville uh, broadcast. He said that he went for a change right before Orr started skating up ice. Larry Keenan came on for Terry Crisp. And Crispy says today, had he known that was going to become the most famous picture in hockey history, he would have stayed on and just kind of got behind Bobby Orr and made some goofy face. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, you know, it happened so quickly. It happened the 42nd mark of overtime and the Blues never really had the puck in the offensive zone so but it was a great play it was a give and go from Sanderson to Orr in front and uh you know that that obviously did it but you know the Blues fought hard um they were more competitive I think in the first year against Montreal when they lost four one goal games in the final but Boston was a powerhouse team I mean they won again in 72 and when you have players like Bobby Orr and Phil Esposito and Busick, I mean, some of the greatest players in the history of the game. Uh, quite obviously, the Blues were overwhelmed in that series. Christian, I want to ask you a question here in just a moment, but I want to throw this back to John real quick. John, you told me a couple days ago we were working on a piece for The Athletic, and you said that, you know, your dad, he's a part of the finals the first couple of years he's here. He never would have dreamed that it would take 49 more years to get back there. No, I, I've often thought that. Um, after that series, he probably said to himself, well, this is easy. Uh, my team's going to make it to the finals every year uh, because they made it in his first two years, and then they haven't made it since. And they, they were close. I mean, they had some really good teams 
Uh, of course, he passed away in 89, but their 81 team was a super team um, led by Federko and Sutter and Babich. Uh, they lost in the second round of the Rangers. And then in 86, as we know, they lost in Game 7 of the Western Final to Calgary 2-1. to one. You know, one more win, they would have gone on to play the Canadians in the final. So they got pretty close, but it's amazing that in all that time, they never got back. And I just, uh, again, look back to my father early on thinking this is easy, but we all know it's not easy. Cristiano, I'm 44 years old. I've never experienced a trip to the uh, Stanley Cup Finals. Obviously, you being in your early 20s, you haven't either. What's it been like to know Blues hockey, to feel it, uh, but never get to that level and, and get to experience what everybody's experiencing this week? Well, especially me being from Chicago, my family has season tickets and they've had season tickets of the Blackhawks since the early 80s. And they were blessed with those three Stanley Cups, 2010, 2013, 2015. And the way they did it seemed so easy. You never thought that the Blackhawks were out of a series with Joel Quenville at the helm behind the bench with Patrick Kane, Jonathan Taze, Duncan Keith, Brent Seabrook, Hosa. The list goes on to the Hall of Famers that come out of that dynasty in Chicago. And now to experience in St. Louis to watch how difficult it was in early January to watch this team that had so much potential after the offseason with their acquisitions of O'Reilly, Bozak, Maroon. And to now, fast forward, it's May 24th, the day we're shooting uh, episode 10 of the Blue Line podcast, and we're talking about the St. Louis Blues in the Stanley Cup final for the first time in 49 years. The way they did it, the hand pass in game three against San Jose, the overtime winner from Eric Carlson. You even go back to that Winnipeg series, down 2 nothing in the third period in game five, and the Blues pulling off a miraculous comeback, something I never saw growing up in the playoffs. Whenever the Blues seemed to be down in a series or down in a game, they had little pushback, and now we find them rallying in Winnipeg, beating Dallas in Game 7 double overtime, the hometown kid Pat Maroon winning it, and now going through San Jose after all that adversity. You have that disbelief, Jeremy and J.K., as you saw the Enterprise Center crowd, the we want the cup chance didn't start until the fourth goal from Tyler Bozak with under seven minutes to go in the third period. I think that just encapsulated the anxiousness of a Blues crowd filled with generations of people just waiting for the heartbreak to come, and it hasn't come just yet. Goosebumps, that was definitely a goosebump moment when the cha- when the crowd started chanting, we want the cup. You know why they were able to win that series? You know why they were able to get three- through three rounds of the playoffs so far? It's because John looked up at his dad, Dan Kelly's banner, <laughs> and has said, Dad, we need some help. Tell us, John. Well, I actually did that. And I look at it, um, my broadcast position is behind the penalty box. And during every anthem, I say a little prayer and look at his banner after the anthem. But in this case, in Game 7 against Dallas, I was in the corner. And I think in the third period, I started to look up at the banner and said, Dad, we need help tonight. We need help. And Dallas came close. The Blues came close. They were obviously the better team for most of the game. So I just kept you know, looking up there and, and asking for some divine intervention, and then Maroon scored. So, um, you know, I, I, got, I believe in that kind of stuff. And uh, I know a lot of people have their superstitions or... Uh, they're people that they count on or pray to or whatever. But in that particular game, I, I probably looked at his banner 15 or 20 times. Oh, that's amazing. You know, and that, that helped. It really did help. And to see Bobby Plager in tears after that game the other night, uh, wrapping up the conference championship, uh, you just pull for 
uh, the Blues to uh, to win this cup so Bobby can have his parade like he always talks about. All right, guys, episode number 10 of the Blue Line podcast. We want to talk about this team. Uh, I want to ask both of you guys, what makes this team different? The Blues have had great teams over the years. Some of them didn't make it, you know, a couple rounds, and they probably had a better roster than this roster here. To me, what separates this club from the 15 clubs that I've covered is the resiliency. And I know it's a cliche word, uh, but Cristiano just talked about it a minute ago. You're down 2 nothing in the third period of Game 5 in Winnipeg, a tough place to play. You get a couple goals and then one with 15 seconds left. Jane Schwartz wins it. In every series, John, they have had moments where they looked like they were out of it and they came right back. It seems like they just shrug stuff off. Yeah, I think that they have overcome adversity very well all year. And to me, that's really good that they had to do that in the regular season because now in the playoffs, and we've seen that in the first three rounds, nothing will bother them, whether it's getting down 3-2 in a series or having to deal with a bad call like we saw in Game 3 against San Jose or coming back, um, as Cristiano said, in Game 5 in Winnipeg. They've overcome adversity and, quite honestly, a lot more adverse conditions and situations than those. I mean, they're in last place overall in mid-January. I think that's number one. The other thing that I like about this team is they're so deep. I mean, they had... 11 or 13 guys get 10 or more goals. 13, yeah. 13, which is a club record. They're deep on defense. I mean, a guy like Dunn gets gets uh, hit in the face, and he goes out for the last couple of games. Gunnarsson comes in, and they're very strong in goals. So to me, this is the best, deepest, most complete Blues team I've ever seen. What can you say about that depth, Cristiano? Well, I'll go quickly first back to what Ken Hitchcock used to say about the word adversity. He said it matures you or rips you apart. And I think the Blues took that in stride this year and they looked at every single person on the roster and treated them the same way. You see the the Bruins and the way Zane Ochara talks about his teammates. He doesn't even like to use the word rookie. He prefers first year. And you look at a guy like Robert Thomas who's coming in his first season in the National Hockey League. There's no special treatment for a guy like him. He gets put on that third line. He gets a lot of minutes, and you saw that line of Maroon, Bozak, and Thomas really start to become that puck-cycling force in that series against Dallas and in the early portions of the series against Winnipeg in moments where the Blues were not having success at the offensive side. And so I think when you talk about the depth of Oscar Sundquist and how about Alexander Steen as well, accepting that role at that fourth-line position, of course he's used to that top-six role throughout his National Hockey League career, but he accepts the role, he executes it, as Eddie Olchek always says, and it's just been phenomenal to watch how the Blues have four lines that are filled with offensive threats, but they can also play in their own zone and be responsible coming out of it, something we didn't see in the early part of the regular season. Guys, uh, Craig Bruby was asked a question today, and I loved his answer. We'll break it down here. He was asked, what has he learned from these three rounds about his team as far as uh, it growing and getting even better? And he, he broke it down to two things. He said, number one, he feels like the club is getting better as the series goes along. We probably agree with him, John. Games one and two in these series, you know, they're okay, but it seems like games three, four, five, this team really finds its, its pace. And then secondly, uh, the physicality. Uh, 42 hits in that first game against San Jose. A lot of talk about the Blues. Are they trying to go out of their way? Are they trying to be too physical and not play the hockey game? Look, they dialed it back a little bit, but they kept the physicality. They played with the puck more, and their physicality really wore down the Sharks. I think it really wore down the Sharks, and I think it wore down the Dallas Stars. Um, And I was sort of curious about the Blues game plan in Game 1 against San Jose, but it really paid off because – they were so physical in that game. And, you know, Craig is right, although they did take a 2 nothing lead in the first round against Winnipeg, so th- that's uh, a little misleading. But 
I think that they have been the better team in the big games late in the series. Obviously, they're down 3-2 against Dallas, and obviously they win the last three against San Jose. Cristiano, you and I talked about that physicality. You do a lot of good uh, video work of these Blues playoff games, and, and you showed a number of these big hits, Braden Shen being a guy, Sammy Blay being a guy, and uh, we both agree here. What do you think about the physicality? I think that it's a lot different from what we saw in earlier playoff moments from the St. Louis Blues. I think they're playing a lot more disciplined when they dish out those body checks. We've seen guys like Max LaPierre and even Steve Ott, who, of course, is behind the Blues bench right now, um, really go out of their way and take undisciplined penalties, and those end up to bite you on the rear end come playoff time. And especially in this series upcoming against the Boston Bruins, who their power play is as electric as can be in the National Hockey League, I think the Blues are being responsible. And it's tough for those defensemen on either Dallas or San Jose. Whenever the puck's chipped in, you could tell these guys are ruining and just waiting to get hit. And I think that made Eric Carlson second guess himself in the beginning of game five and game six, um, or excuse me, game four and game five, because he really did not look comfortable at all, injury or not, the fact that he had to take a lick from a guy like Oscar Sundquist or Braden Shen every time he was out on the ice. Let's talk about a couple of the individuals, John and Cristiano. Uh, you have a, a few players, Jaden Schwartz, 11 goals during the regular season. We were talking about what an awful regular season this was for Jaden Schwartz. John, you know him as a very hard worker. Things are eventually going to come for him. But nobody could have envisioned things coming in such a big way for Jaden Schwartz. He picks up uh, goals, uh, what, 10, 11, 12 the other night. He's second behind Logan Couture in the postseason. Have you seen any sort of change in Schwartz, or is it just a matter of it was going to come eventually? You know, I don't know if it was going to come eventually because it really never came in the regular season. But it's all confidence to me, Jeremy and, and Cristiano. I can't remember, you know, tell you how many times during the season where we saw Schwartz, and he's never lacked work ethic. He's never lost that element of his game. But so many times in in a game, he would come down on a three on two or a two on one, and hit the goalpost, or the goalie would make a great save, or more often than not, he wouldn't even shoot the puck. He would he would fumble it or make a pass that was knocked down. So he had no confidence. And now when you see him. He gets that puck, he shoots it, and he scores. It's just to me, it's all confidence, and I'm not sure what triggered it. Probably the hat trick in uh, the Winnipeg series in the closeout game. Uh, it, maybe it was the goal before in Game Five, the winner with 15 seconds left. I don't know, but something clicked, and he's got his confidence, and now he's become the big-time goal scorer that he really always was as a St. Louis Blue until this year. He's really feeling it. Another one, Cristiano, number 91, really criticized after game one of that past uh, series. Just looked like a, a passenger. Craig Berube publicly called him out by saying that we need him to play harder away from the puck. I thought game two on uh, Vladimir Tarasenko was terrific. He finished with a point in every single game of that series. But beyond that, the one thing that we want from Vladimir Tarasenko is for him to be engaged. I thought he was the rest of that series. Especially on the physical side. I mean, he's throwing his body around against guys like Timo Meyer, against Justin Braun, whether it's early on the forecheck, whether it's in his own defensive zone. But he just kept his feet moving, too. And, and you look at that goal in St. Louis where he just went through the neutral zone, skated like shot out of a cannon over the left circle and fired it past the glove of Martin Jones. That's the type of player Vladimir Tarasenko is. That is how he has scored over 30 goals so many times in his career. He needs to get to that 40 mark in the regular season, but the dynamic change from him and the way that he adjusted to how Vlasic defended him versus in 2016 when he was completely shut down until the third period of that game six where he scored two goals in a couple of minutes and the Blues ended 
ended up losing that series to now in 2019. He really took the game in stride and really understood that if he stays in his own zone instead of cherry picking the neutral zone a little bit, waiting for things to develop, he goes right to the scrum, right to the board battle, gets the puck out and transitions to the neutral zone in his own way. And I think that just showed you another element to Tarasenko's game that when he's really going at both ends of the ice, he's a pretty unstoppable force. John, before we get to the Jordan Bennington story, he continues to just impress people. Let's talk about one uh, defenseman, number 55, Colton Pareko. I tweeted the other night during the game, this is the best hockey Colton Pareko has played. Do you agree? No question. I mean, but don't forget, he came up as a rookie in 16 and went to the third round. But he, he has taken his game to a new level and so much confidence. And my opinion is that right now, Pareko Bomeister is the best shutdown D pair in the NHL, um, period. I'm not just talking about the team's left. They have been marvelous. They've had the tough assignments in every series, and they've answered the bell. And now he's chipping in with some offense and, and his skating, his elusiveness. Um, it seems whenever the Blues get in trouble, if he's on the ice, he gets them out of trouble. And that's a, it's a great benefit. And that's, to me, what makes this team so dangerous is that they can defend – against the very best that the opposition can throw at them, whether it's Shifley in the first round or Ben and Sagan in the second round, uh, the last round against Couture, who had the one big game. But for the most part, they did a pretty good job on the top players of San Jose. And, you know, most teams can't defend on a regular basis against the best of the best, and Pareko and Bo Meester can. Great point, and I want to send that to you, Cristiano, because Alex Petrangelo is a guy who's eaten up a lot of minutes on the Blues defense, and right now he's playing with uh, Joel Edmondson. Uh, but this emergence of Pareko and Jay Bo Meester, and you would have never thought that at the start of the season with the way Jay Bo Meester was playing, recovering from that hip surgery, but they've been able to play that shutdown role, taking a little bit of the load off Alex Petrangelo. And I know things change with the different matchups home and away, uh, but for the most part, Pareko and Bomeister are doing a phenomenal job. Yeah, you mentioned the load that it's taken off Alex Petrangelo, and Petrangelo has been able to play a little bit more on the offensive side when he knows that the shutdown pair of Pareko and Bomeister have been so dominant. And going back to Pareko's ferociousness and his tenacity, I mean, six to three goal differential at five on five. The Blues had 56% of shot attempts when he was on the ice, 55% of shots on goal, and 61% of high danger chances when he was on the ice at five on five. It's just incredible to watch Pareko come into his own, and a lot of people still want him to shoot the puck a little bit more than he has, especially in the regular season. But his defense ability to really control his gap in the neutral zone when you've got such fast skaters coming at him like Evander Kane, Logan Couture, and now he's going to be facing guys like Bergeron, Marshawn, Pasternak in this series. I would not be surprised at the Blues because you look back at the previous two series, each opposition's team in game two has adjusted their lines a little bit. I Even though that top line of Boston has been the best line in hockey all year long, if they don't get it done in game one, I could see uh, Bruce Cassidy pulling the trigger a little bit and maybe adjusting to the way that Bomeister and Pareko defend that line. We're going to break down and, and look ahead to that Boston uh, series coming up in just a little bit. But before we do, John, I want to ask you about the goaltender. You've been around a lot of great goaltenders in Blues history, Mike Liute, Curtis Joseph, uh, Grant Fuhr. You've sure, I'm sure you've been around uh, a lot of surprise stories throughout the Blues history. Uh, where does Jordan Bennington rank in terms of quality goaltending and also the surprise he comes out of nowhere we've all heard the story fourth on the depth chart at the start of the season now he's taken this team at age 25 years old to the Stanley Cup final well you you could argue that he has given this team 
the best goaltending it's ever had. Wow. I mean, you could really say that. I mean, Liut was great in 81, um, but he and the team sort of fizzled in the second round against the Rangers. Obviously, Fuhr was at the end of his career, but he got hurt when Kiprios fell on him. Uh, Cujo never could get this club to the third round. Jerome Turek couldn't. I mean, I mean, the numbers don't lie that he has been the best goalie in hockey since he came in on January 7th. And he's calm. Nothing phases him. Um, maybe the first time I was really blown away by Bennington was the night they won in Tampa Bay one nothing. That was an unbelievable performance uh, by Bennington and the Blues. They were the much better team in the first half of that game, but Tampa Bay really ramped it up in the second half and had a lot of great chances, and he shut them out. And they were the best team in hockey in the regular season. And he didn't seem phased at all. And, of course, he had his famous quote, do I look nervous? (laughs) He doesn't look nervous, guys and girls. I mean, he has been as cool as can be. And it's an amazing story. It really is. Cool as a cucumber. Cristiano, you've uh, clipped the video, John. I'm sure you've seen it. What does uh, Jordan Bennington do after Braden Shen scores that goal in Tampa Bay and they win it in overtime? Nothing. <laughs> he, do- he does He does nothing. And, and it's just incredible because uh, Jeremy put out a story on the Athletic St. Louis a couple weeks ago comparing the reactions of different goaltenders with the poise of Jordan Bennington as a whole to that initial shot. He's so square to the shooter. I mean, you don't walk yourself into a 1.89 goals against average in your first 30 games in the National Hockey League with ease. And I think mentioning that Tampa Bay game was extremely poignant in this conversation, John, because of the fact all those rush chances that Tampa Bay had when there's guys like Tyler Johnson, Victor Hedman, Kucherov, Stamkos, skating at this rookie goaltender. And I know he's a rookie, but he's 25 years old, but still. And he just isn't phased in the slightest. He's making saves with ease. He's controlling his rebounds. And then you move into that Winnipeg series where he was tested early and often by Patrick Laine and Blake Wheeler. The same thing happens. You go through Dallas. You go through San Jose. In the last three games of that San Jose series, he was dominant, 75 of 77 saves, and he hasn't looked back since throughout the year. Jordan Bington has been the guy and one of the greatest stories in the St. Louis Blues franchise history for sure. Guys, I can't believe we're getting ready to talk about this, but we are going to look ahead to the Stanley Cup final, the St. Louis Blues and the Boston Bruins, the last two teams left in the NHL this year. And, John, we want to get into how they match up. And just to set the table here, we're talking about two teams that are pretty similar. You talk about that top line, Boston probably has the edge there, but both teams have a lot of depth up front. They both have defenses that'll just suffocate you and uh, just won't give you many good scoring chances. And we just talked about Bennington. Boston has the same situation. If not, a goaltender who's playing even better in Tuka Rask, these teams look a lot like each other. Yeah, and Bruce Cassidy at his press conference a couple of days ago said he thinks these teams mirror each other and he expects a low-scoring series, tight games, physical games. I think where the Blues do have... One edge is on defense in terms of their size. I mean, their defense is really big, as we know. And conversely, Boston has three guys that I believe are 5'10 or or smaller. So their defense is not nearly as big. Now, Char is bigger than everybody, so he perhaps makes up for that. Makes up for it. Yeah, but their defense is not nearly as big as the Blues. Now, the Bruins' power play is at 34% in the playoffs. That is amazing. The Blues' power play really struggled in the last couple of games against San Jose. So that could be... A tipping point in the series. Uh, But where I really like the Blues, and we talked about it earlier, is their depth. And I think the Blues can can beat you with any of the four lines, and they wear you down. If they can get to their game, 
which is it's not a game of running through people at every opportunity. It's more of a possession game, a cycle game in the offensive zone, and they wear you down and wear you down. And obviously the opposition can't score if the puck's in their zone. So if they can get to their game and do it with four lines on a, a nightly basis, a period to period basis, they're going to be tough to beat. Uh, Cristiano, John brings up a great point talking about that size on defense. You and I have talked about that throughout the season. And, you know, visiting coaches, when you talk to them, that's one of the underrated things that they bring up all the time. You're talking about uh, Jay Bomeister, Colton Pareko, Alex Petrangelo, Robert Bortuzzo. These guys are all 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", Joel Edmondson. And uh, not only is it the size, guys, but it's the sticks. They they put the sticks in the passing lanes, and, and it doesn't even give the offensive guys an opportunity to say, hey, that might be a play there. Uh, so that's an underrated aspect of this Blues defense, isn't it, Cristiano? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when teams are trying to skate through that middle area of the ice, they're not able to make those one-two touch passes that could spring guys through the offensive zone and create a two-on-one or a three-on-two rush. And when you're looking at Colton Pareko and the puck gets chipped into the corner, what does he do? He just uses the high glass because he's so quick to get to that puck with that long reach and to just flip it out, it really sends teams shaking their heads because you have no idea how to get into the offensive zone and have some possession. And then you look at Bennington's emergence at playing the puck and using Jay Bomeister's rejuvenated self and his skating ability ever since that hip injury. And the Blues have a a couple double-headed monsters on the back end that can really transition the puck well and really disappoint the opposition in a way where it's stifling and something that they haven't seen, especially as an Eastern Conference team. Boston hasn't really faced this type of defense, and I don't think anybody in the National Hockey League has unless they've come through the St. Louis Blues in the playoffs. John, the big question going into the opening round against Winnipeg was how can the Blues slow down this uh, Shifley line? I know they didn't have a great couple months leading into the playoffs, but still a, a very talented line with Kyle Connor, Blake Wheeler. Uh, then you get into the uh, the next series, Dallas and Sagan, and Ben were the hottest line uh, you know, going in the playoffs. They had a terrific first round against Nashville. I believe that line had uh, 18 points with Radulov on it. So you pass that test, right? Then you get to San Jose. How do you slow down Logan Couture uh, and then Hurdles on that second line? They've got a really good top six. But the Blues have done it every step of the way. They're going to run into a terrific line. Brad Marchand over 100 points this year. Patrice Bergeron, who's a Selkie guy every year, and David Pasternak, who's having a wonderful season. How do you see this matchup? Well, it's, it's challenging or more challenging than the, the three you just mentioned. Um, the one thing that, that the Bruins in that group has going for them is two of the three have won cups. So Bergeron and Marchand were on the 2011 Stanley Cup team. They know what it takes. And, and you know, when it comes to the big games – uh, you know, they obviously can perform. But I, I like the way the Blues have risen to the task all year when it's come to challenging and slowing down top lines, Jeremy. I go back to a game, and I'm not sure if it was November or December. It was in Denver when the McKinnon line, McKinnon, Landis, Skog, Rantanen, they were by far the best line in hockey. And the Blues went in there, and it was the night Pareko was scored in overtime on that miraculous yeah. one-handed backhand goal. And they really did a great job on that ranted in line. I think that line had one power play goal in the game, but they really shut them down. And it was really impressive. And that was just one of the first times I really was, wow, this team, when they want to play defense, they can play defense. So I guess in summary, they've done it all year. So why can't they do it now against another top line? I think they can. 
one thing that Brad Marchant is good at, too, is getting under the skin of uh, opponents. Cristiano and Pat Maroon talked about that yesterday, and, and Pat Maroon said, hey, let him be Marchant. Let him do his thing. And, and Pat Maroon said, speaking from experience, I know that when guys uh, get under my skin and rile me up, that gets me playing better. He does not want to do that to Brad Marchant in this series. It sounds like the best thing to do, and I know it's easier said than done, is to not pay too much attention to Brad Marchant. And it's tough when you don't want to pay attention to a guy who's got seven goals and 11 assists in the postseason. And that line has scored 39% of their goals in the playoffs. So it's really tough to ignore the the type of ludicrous behavior you see from Brad Marchand because he's such a dominant player and such a tremendous hockey player at both ends of the ice. But yeah, Pat Maroon said it best. You're just going to have to let him live in his own antics and really clean up things after the whistle because a lot of the times, and Justin Williams can attest to this in the Eastern Conference Final, the refs aren't going to see that initial jab or that initial grab from Brad Marchand, they're going to see the retaliation from the Blues players. So you're going to have to limit that and really be disciplined. And there's nothing that'll tell me that the Blues are going to be unhinged in the Stanley Cup final, judging off of their last three series where we've seen guys try and get under their skin with physicality, hits after the whistle, slashing Bennington, and the Blues have really uh, kept their heads on straight. Just a couple more minutes left to go in episode 10 of the Blue Line Podcast. I want to ask both of you guys about a storyline that we're going to hear about for the next at least week and a half. Uh, number 42, David Backus, the Blues captain for a number of years. He elects to take that free agent offer with the Boston Bruins. And for the last year or so, it looks like uh, you know Backus has struggled. He, he was a healthy scratch. Uh, they're even talking about possibly buying him out. And now he finds himself on the second line for the Boston Bruins playing his former team. I mean, who makes these stories up, right? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's one of 10 or more amazing stories, Jeremy. You're right. Yeah, and, and, and so you're going to have a matchup here of David Backus against the team he captained. Uh, but even more personally, I'm going to write about this at the Athletic St. Louis, the relationship between Petrangelo and David Backus. I realize that a lot of teammates uh, part ways, go to different teams, play each other. I realize that even some of them are in each other's weddings, like Petrangelo and Backus. But to me, this story is at the next level. David Backus basically handed the C off to Alex Petrangelo. Uh Alex Petrangelo, when he had difficulty with wearing the C and, and just how do I deal with everything, who did he call? He called Boston, and he, he, he got his buddy David Backus on the phone and said, how do I handle this? I talked to Petrangelo today about that, and he said he was there to answer the phone every single time. What a unique situation this is. It, it is very unique, and and you're right. You're not, you're not overstating this. They are like brothers. That's how close they are. As a matter of fact, last year when Backus came to town, I was talking to him, and he said he wanted to come back and – and buy a house in St. Louis, and I don't know if he has or not, but he wants to live in St. Louis and grow up in this community and perhaps live around his buddy Petrangelo. So they're so close, but now for the next two weeks, they they have to be enemies, and they, they can't be friends because only one of the two will lift the Stanley Cup in a couple of weeks, and obviously Petrangelo hopes it's him. Yeah, and Cristiano, this isn't just a situation where their teams are playing each other. I talked about David Backus being on that second line. We know that Pareko and uh, Bomeister are going to get the, the minutes against uh, the Marshawn Kretschy, I'm sorry, the uh, Marshawn Bergeron Pasternak line. It sounds like we're going to see a lot of Alex Petrangelo against David Backus. 
Which would just be incredible because he's on that line with Jake DeBrusque as well as Krejci, and they've been a great line. You look at David Backus's numbers over the last three years since he left St. Louis, he has not hit 20 goals. I believe there was a stretch in St. Louis where in full seasons he had five straight years of 20 goals or more. The numbers in Boston have been 7, 14, and 7 in the following three years he's been in Boston. So he's really found his game in the playoffs, and I think his his physical style of play really encapsulates what the Stanley Cup playoffs are with that physical, uh, with that tenacity, the brash style of play in all three zones. But it's going to be incredible to watch Alex Petrangelo play against David Backus for how many games this series is going to be on the game's biggest stage that is the Stanley Cup final. And he's already burned the Blues a couple of times in that Bruins uniform right in front of the net. That vintage move from David Backus, that high slot redirect, the low slot redirect right in front of the goalie. It's going to be an extremely fun atmosphere to watch these two friends become enemies, as John said, for the next two weeks here. Yeah, and uh, I know where our listeners aside. I know uh, who people want to win this uh, Stanley Cup, but it is pretty amazing to me that either David Backus or the city of St. Louis will be celebrating a Stanley Cup. John, help us uh, send out of here. Uh, I want to ask you just the, the vibe in St. Louis. I mean, you've been here uh, basically your whole life, uh, despite you know leaving for Colorado and Tampa Bay at points. You know what this means to St. Louisans. Just the past couple days, ever since the Blues uh, clinched, I'm hearing from a ton of people just so excited, telling me to soak it up. I'm sure you're hearing the same thing. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing. I, I, I think without a doubt that there's more enthusiasm for this hockey club, and, and this goes back to even you know late in the regular season, not just now because they're in the final, but there's there's never been this much excitement for this hockey team. And even going back comparatively to 2016 when they went to the third round, it's it's a lot bigger, and it's just it's amazing. I I'll just say what my mother said to me uh, many times in the last year or two. Jeremy, she's 82 years old. She's lived here since the you know the family came down in '68. And my mom said, all I want before I die is the Blues to win a Stanley Cup. So this is coming from Dan Kelly's wife, and I think that is exactly what the Blues fan base feels today. All they want is to see the Blues win a Stanley Cup. This is one of those situations where there's a home run moment and the announcer just steps away and lets lets, uh, the silence go and lets the crowd take over here. I mean, Cristiano, we can't top that. That is so well said. We're talking about one of the legends in blues hockey, Dan Kelly, and his wife. Uh, She just wants to see see a Stanley Cup. She's certainly uh, not the only one, but I can't imagine what it would mean to her moving her family, uh, starting a family here after leaving Ottawa and coming down to St. Louis. And and Dan, you know, we say doesn't get to see it, but he's up in heaven and he's going to be watching, so that'll be terrific. So I'm glad that we could hook uh, Cristiano and John up today. Uh, (laughs) I'm floored, and uh, you've done a great job today on this uh, podcast, and I've enjoyed listening to you and and Jeremy as well, and thank you for having me. Yeah, this is fun. Episode number 10 of the Blue Line podcast for Cristiano Simonetta. I'm Jeremy Rutherford. A special huge thanks to John Kelly for coming in the studio and recording uh, this podcast. Have fun, Blues fans. Enjoy this uh, Stanley Cup Finals because, as we know, it might only come around every 49 years or so. We hope not, but we'll find out. Thanks a lot for listening. We really appreciate the support. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Blue Line Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to The Athletic St. Louis and follow the guys on Twitter.